0: Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre, and I coordinate the adult programmes here. And it's a great delight this evening to introduce Brenda Ricks, who is uh, assistant curator in the Prints and Drawings Department, and has been since 1998. And she's going to give us our second in the series of lectures on Holman Hunt to go with the exhibition upstairs that I hope you've all seen. Uh, Brenda Ricks, as I said, has been here since 1998. Um, She has a Master's of of Arts degree in the History of Art from the University of Canada, specializing in 19th to 20th century Canadian, North American, and European art. She's coordinated many exhibitions. The list was huge. I'd be here for 20 minutes, including the Earthly Paradise Arts and Crafts by William Morris and his circle from Canadian Collections. She's also worked as an art consultant and contributed to numerous publications, including Prince Spreading the Word in the exhibition catalog for Home and Hunt and the Pre-Raphaelite Vision. Brenda Ricks.
1: Okay, can everyone hear me? Yes? No? Okay. Um, I hope you enjoyed the slideshow. That was um, just something for you to look at some pretty pictures to look at when you came in. Um, And it sort of indicates, at least it just uh, sets the stage in a way for uh, my talk tonight because those were some photographs of stained glass windows in Ottawa from the Anglican Diocese there, and that was courtesy of someone named Brian Glenn who sent them to me. Um, It's just an indication of the kind of um, celebrity and fame that... Uh, Holman Hunt's *Light of the World* had long after his death, so we'll be mentioning more about that as we go along. I have the first images. Okay, um, I'm showing you a photo from a newspaper, from the Illustrated London News, of Holman Hunt's funeral with full honors in St Paul's Cathedral in London on September the 12th, 1910. And here we see his um, his urn being carried up the uh, steps of St Paul's. By a number of his friends, including William Michael Rossetti, who was Dante Gabriel Rossetti's brother and another member of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, um, and, a, and an artist named Arthur Hughes, who was a very close associate of theirs. And also, interestingly for us, Charles Trick Corelli, who was the first director of the Royal Interior Museum, was also there at the funeral. The next day, uh, the Times reported the following. The thousands who assembled in St. Paul's Cathedral yesterday and the crowds in the churchyard outside were the representatives of many millions who had never seen Holman Hunt in the flesh, but to whom he was far more than a name, for his pictures had carried him, a revered and familiar friend, into homes without number all over the world. So this uh, report indicates that there was extremely strong name recognition for Hunt in homes without number all over the world, it said. And he was described as far more than a name, but a revered and familiar friend to millions. So not just thousands, or not a a target audience, not um, a small audience, but literally to the entire population of Britain and most of the English-speaking world. So his name, or in today's lingo, the Home Hunt brand, had entered the public consciousness by this point. Um, However, if the crowd had never seen the artist himself in the flesh, as the writer said. Most of them had never seen his paintings in the flesh either. And it was primarily through the black and white prints made after his paintings that his images were disseminated around the globe. And that's going to be one of the focuses of my talk. Now one exception to that is the painting that I'm showing you, which is the large version of the Light of the World that was installed in that same cathedral in 1908, or two years before Hunt's death. And just two years prior to that, in 1905 and 1906, this same large painting of the light of the world had made a tour around the globe. It had traveled across the British Empire to Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa in 1905 and 6, and had been seen by a total of up to 7 million people. So this was really the first blockbuster exhibition Um, And it was seen by Hunt and his, um, his friend and patron, Charles Booth, who was the owner of the painting, as a means to promote world peace when they sent this around the world. But as I mentioned before, relatively few people had come into direct contact with most of Hunt's paintings. For most people, familiarity familiarity with his paintings was primarily through the exposure of the vehicle of black and white engravings that were made as reproductions after his paintings, like the one I'm showing you here, After the Light of the World. And like hundreds of, of smaller versions of his paintings, in postcards, note cards, and through stained glass windows that we saw earlier, reproductions in prayer books and Sunday school papers and paper ephemera that proliferated in the first half of the 20th century. Um, It's important to remember that 150 years ago there was no instantaneous transmission of images through the Internet or TV. There were no movies or glossy full-color magazines. In fact, there was no color photography, and photography was really in its infancy at that time. But there was a burgeoning print media in black and white and a growing middle class, a new literate public, that were eager to learn and read about art and to consume black and white images of all kinds. So my talk explores the way that Hunt embraced and intimately understood the world and the potential of black and white imagery. And his conviction that his vision could be uh, spread to wide audiences through the vehicle of printmaking led to his involvement in many aspects of the print trade and the print world. From the beginning of his career, he found inspiration for his paintings in early printed sources. He also personally tried his hand at a range of printmaking techniques, first etching his own copper plates and later designing illustrations for wood engravings in books, and then oversaw the preparation of the plates for reproductive engravings that were made after his paintings. This is a a self-portrait of him as a very well-established artist in the late 1860s. Holman Hunt believed in the transformative power of art, and he believed that art should have a strong moral message and he wanted it to be accessible to a mass audience. And in his printmaking endeavors, we'll see that he was willing to take risks to expand the boundaries of the medium in order to reach his goals, and that he displayed a winning combination of business acumen, marketing strategies, technical innovation, with his obsessively high standards. Because by the time that he made his first known print, we'll see in a minute, um, at the age of 22, he was already immersed in the world of black and white illustration. He was the son of a warehouse manager, grew up in a lower-middle-class neighbourhood in London's East End, and he was determined very early on to become an artist in the face of parental opposition. His father discouraged him from choosing art as a vocation, but he did foster his son's interest in art. And his father owned a library of art books and a collection of prints. Some of those prints were pasted into albums which Hunt nostalgically remembers being brought out on Sunday evenings and how his father spoke of them and how each one was more enthralling than the last. Hunt taught himself to draw by copying engravings that were given to him by his father. A three-volume pictorial Bible published in 1836 was passed on to Hunt by his father. This was lavishly illustrated with wood engravings. I'm showing you the uh, title page in the frontispiece. With wood engravings of Far East inspired landscapes, costumes, musical instruments, animals, birds, mosaics, architecture, hieroglyphic figures, and detailed engravings after other artists, both old master and contemporary. A, re- a resource of this kind provided examples of various kinds of printmaking processes, and also served as a reservoir, a visual reservoir of images for an ongoing uh, reference for Hunt and for inspiration. I'm showing you his painting of the scapegoat from the 1850s, which is reminiscent of the image of the goats after Edwin Landseer, including which include a scapegoat. Um, And they illustrate a passage in Leviticus where the scapegoat is sent out into the desert carrying the sins of the people to atone for their sin. And this provides a type of Christ. And this was possibly one of the inspirations for Hunt's painting. This is um, one of Hunt's later paintings of the 1860s, the Isabella and the Pot of Basil. It's an image of of longing and of grief because it was painted um, and modeled by his wife. It was painted at the time uh, his wife was dying and it was modeled by his wife Fanny who died while he was working on the painting. But it illustrates a scene from Keats' poem of Isabella and the Pot of Basil. She's shown leaning on a pot of basil that contains the head of her dead lover, Lorenzo. And I'm comparing it Maybe it's a bit of a stretch, but to David leaning on a pedestal in which you see the head of Goliath. I think it might have been in one of his inspirations for this. From 1844 to 1848, Hunt attended the Royal Academy School, and he was trained there in the tradition of copying from the old masters, including sculpture and paintings and prints. So he copied all of these uh, kinds of works. And he... Whoops. He recalled, for example, the Dutch prints that he copied in the British Museum print room, and he also built his own substantial library of art books and illustrated dictionaries and had many well-thumbed, well-annotated volumes of of visual uh, reference. In 1848, when the uh, Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood was first founded, the secret brotherhood of a band of young rebellious artists. Um, including and and founded primarily by John Everett Millet, Holman Hunt and Dante Gabriel Rossetti. They came together in opposition to the academic and conventional art of the day and they were looking to the purity and simplicity of early Renaissance art at the time before Raphael. And as one one story goes, Hunt and his friend Millet were dubbed the Pre-Raphaelites by another student, in derision probably, when they were overheard criticizing an engraving of Raphael's altarpiece of the Transfiguration. Never having seen a painting by Raphael and not being able to see the Transfiguration in the flesh because it was in Italy, um, can only imagine what the two young men might have been saying, talking about how they found uh, figures artificial and the poses affected and the drapery was stiff and the composition was overblown um, and formulaic and they didn't like the use of perspective and so on. But the story points out that it was a black and white engraving that they were examining and that the young Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood had seen very few early Italian paintings of the kind that they were supposed to be inspired by. But they did see numerous reproductions of such paintings in books, such as the ones they were looking at one fateful evening in September of 1848, which was a, a seminal moment in the founding of the PRB, when Hunt, Millet, and Rossetti were poring over a large folio volume of black and white engravings that reproduced the frescoes by the 15th century artist Benazzo Gozzoli in the Campo Santo in Pisa. But they weren't looking at colour facsimiles of Gozzoli's paintings. They were looking at black and white reproductions made in the 18th century by Carlo Licinio. And this is um, one of the images from that folio. And so they were looking at prints that were constructed using a linear system of outlines and cross-hatchings which can be linked to the sharp detail, the lack of shading, and the shallow compositions that we find in early pre-Raphaelite painting and drawing. Here's a couple of early drawings by Hunt of 1848 and 1849, um, subjects from Shelley and Keats. And these early drawings had a characteristic style, it was a sort of an outline style that was rather eccentric and angular, and they submitted a number of drawings to a society called the Cyclographic Society that many of them belonged to, and it was sort of a sketching club that was the predecessor of the pre- Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. Now, other sources for this distinctive outline style can be found in the drawings of both an English sculptor named John Flaxman, and also this German illustrator I'm showing you here, Moritz Rech, whose work was widely em- emulated in England in the early 1840s. And this outline style was the style that Hunt adopted in 1849 for the first known PRB etching. I'm showing two images on a single plate, one above the other, which illustrate two poems by his fellow uh, Pre-Raphaelite artist, Thomas Woolner. It shows how closely these artists work together. Now, this is an etching, and etching was uh, a printmaking technique that was preferred by artists, painters, and draftsmen, since they they did not need a lot of technical knowledge. In order to uh, execute an etching, they could just sketch freely on a prepared copper plate, and the designs were bitten with acid. The plate was inked and printed, and they created multiple black-and-white linear images, like you see here. There was uh, a a renewed interest, kind of a revival in etching, as a leisure pursuit in the 18. Uh, 30s and 40s and Queen Victoria for example and Prince Albert and many other cultivated amateurs tried their hands at etching. It was also used in book illustration and by the 1840s it flourished among artists who were interested in its intrinsic aesthetic qualities and used it as an integral part of their art practice. So it was used by the pre raphaelite Brotherhood and Hunt in 1849 in this image called Of My Beautiful Lady and My Lady in Death, as I said, illustrating two poems by um, his colleague, Thomas Wilner, And this was, part, this was part of the strategy of these young artists to share their artistic and literary vision with a wider audience. And so they came up with the idea of a small serial publication called The Germ. So it was called The Germ and subtitled Thoughts Towards Nature in poetry, literature, and art, and this magazine was intended to be an inexpensive monthly magazine that would include one etching and writings by several members of the group. The first number was published in, on January 1, 1850, in 700 copies, illustrated by this etching by Holman Hunt. There were 50 proofs of the etching on India paper which were sold separately, and we have one of those in our collection here, and it's in the exhibition. This uh, publication only lasted, unfortunately, for four issues. This is a rather lovely etching. It shows um, Hunt is quite proficient with the etching tools, and with his characteristic perfectionism, he apparently changed the plate several times before he was pleased with it, and he said that each version was a striking improvement on the last. So he's created here an image with a kind of early Italian flavor. It's like an altarpiece and predella format with the vertical over the horizontal. And with the medieval costumes and the shallow space and the theatrical poses of the figure, this all lends to this early Italian uh, feeling. So he shows here doomed lovers in a natural environment, uh, which is a common theme in other pre-Raphaelite art of the time. In an outdoor setting, And along with the careful delineation of the natural world, this reflects the pre-Raphaelite commitment to truth to nature. He balances here the pure white dress of the young woman against the dark cloak of her male companion. And as the young man holds tightly to his lady's hand, she leans precariously precariously over the water's edge, which symbolizes that while he is rooted in time, she's slipping into eternity. And then in the lower image, um, he is shown mourning her death. Clothing details such as the hooded tunic gown, the flowing cloaks, and the elongated pointed-toed shoes were probably based on illustrations from Camille Bonard's Costume Historiques, which was a book that was published in 1830, and it was an important source book for the Pre-Raphaelites. Certainly a source book that they used when they were painting paintings like this. But in the early 1850s, there was no time for experimenting with etching, or any other kind of printmaking because they were all busy creating a new kind of British painting with works such as these two by Hunt that are uh, related to themes from Shakespeare, Measure for Measure on the left and The Two Gentlemen of Verona on the right. These images speak of the conflicts between good and evil, the heart-rending moral dilemmas that um, sometimes occur in relationships between the sexes. We have Claudio and Isabella on the left, and the bottom line in this painting, the theme is, is she willing to give up her chastity in order to save his life? This is his sister, and uh, he has asked her to give up her chastity in order for him to be freed from prison to his capture. In the other image, Valentine is seen rescuing his fiancée from being raped by his best friend. So these are not lightweight subjects. These are heart-wrenching crises, And it shows Hunt's fascination with depicting these kinds of moments of crisis and these psychological dramas which are often found um, in his images of relationships between the sexes. So over the next few years, Hunt and the PRB were preoccupied with painting and getting paintings exhibited and creating a name for themselves. This is also the period when Hunt painted the famous Light of the World and also The Awakening Conscience. And fortunately, at this time, they found a champion in an art critic named John Ruskin, um, whose ideas about truth to nature and the importance of having art with a strong moral message led to him being uh, an important advocate for the PRB. And this was critical to the group in becoming established and successful as artists because having good press coverage and having a critic of Ruskin's stature on their side helped to establish their relationships, or sorry, their reputations early on. So after this flurry and period of activity in the early 1850s, by 1853, the life or the duration of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood as a group came to an end as the members began to go their separate ways. And in 1854, Hunt set out on his own way for the Holy Land on his quest to find and recreate authentic biblical times in his paintings. And surprisingly, the the next etching that he would create related to his first trip to the Middle East. He went there for two years, from January 1854 to February 1856. And his next etching is related to this large painting. This is a life-size painting that's in the exhibition of an Egyptian female figure called the Afterglow. And it's a kind of image of abundance, like an Egyptian version of the the goddess Ceres. Uh, But the title, The Afterglow, and the dusky light in the painting, suggest that it reflects um, his idea of the waning of a great civilization. So Hunt actually carried etching tools while he was in the Middle East. And he began a plate called The Egyptian Girl, which was the top image on the right-hand side, a vertical image of an Egyptian woman. He made many alterations to this plate. So it developed uh, many, he, he changed it many times, went through many progress proofs um, with etching and dry point, which is quite unique in mid Victorian printmaking. And by the end, it shows quite an advancement over the, the earlier image. Because it, it soon evolved into two images on one plate. And so these two images that you see on the right were originally on one plate. There wasn't any division between them, one over the other, showing the larger daylight figural composition over a small, dark, horizontal landscape that you see here. Again, this is somewhat like the format that he had used in his earlier germ etching, that kind of altarpiece and predella format. The lower image was called the Sphinx, and the upper image was called the Afterglow in Egypt. The lower image illustrated a trip to the pyramids where he went camping with his fellow artist, Thomas Seddon, um, near to a Sphinx. So in the end, he, he gave them titles, and the titles were The Abundance of Egypt on the top and The Desolation of Egypt on the bottom. And this suggests um, the interesting companion pairs of images with evocative titles that were very popular with Victorian audiences. So the contrasting themes of abundance and desolation, representing light or morning and dark twilight, echo the themes of life and death that we saw in the earlier Etching in the Germ. And the two prints were included in a series published by the Etching Club in November of 1856. And Hunt may have decided at that point to cut them in two in order to make up the 30 that the Etching Club required for this publication. Uh, because by the mid-1850s he'd been persuaded to become a member of the prestigious Etching Club, an association um, in England that promoted a uh, high finish on their plates, on their etching plates and we're primarily interested in illustrating poetry and literature in their series. So Hunt's themes are rather um, exotic and bold compared to some of the other images in this set, and, and um, that some of his other colleagues were doing. This charming uh, image of a young mother by Millet was also in the same set. Um, it's not as exotic or detailed as Hunt's. It's it's a bit sentimental, and it's a kind of a vignette format with the empty corners, which was quite typical of prints at the period. So it's it's tempting to think that Hunt also decided to cut his plate in two uh, because he would sort of temper the shock of of these images by presenting them as two separate prints. Hunt would go on to make only two other etchings of less exotic subjects that were related to his own experience and events in his own life. This is called The Day in the Country of 1865, and it was another etching club assignment which was uh, commissioned to illustrate a day in the country spring. The set was published in 1865 and included this uh, contribution by Hunt, which seems to have a narrative subject, but we don't know exactly what the literary source might be. There was a proof in one collection which is inscribed by Edith Holman Hunt, who is the artist's second wife. It says, represents daughter bringing her lover by stagecoach to see her old mother for the first time. The mother looks critical." And this seems to perhaps reflect the disapproval um, that Hunt came under when he married Edith, who was his deceased wife Fanny's sister. And this was against English common law and the wishes of Edith's family. So um, it might possibly have a bit of a personal connection there. But we see that he has um, carefully observed the, the natural detail and his desire of that sort of still that pre-Raphaelite desire to be true to nature. And he's developed uh, considerably more proficiency with the etching needle. But the the composition is rather unusual. The sort of tilted perspective, cropping and awkward poses and positioning of the, f- of the figures, they give it all kind of intensity and modernity that's not found, again, in other works in the set such as, again, this image by Millet of Happy Springtime, which is, again, a kind of uh, vignette-style, rather sentimental image. Um, Hunt didn't uh, take up the etching tools very often because he he seemed to have ongoing struggles with the technique, and he was very um, interested in accumulating detail in his work, so he probably... um, uh, it probably wasn't the most sympathetic medium for him because it lends itself to a more sort of open and sketchy approach. So his, his last etching, and, and 14 years would pass between the previous etching and this etching, uh, which is called The Father's Leave-Taking, he did in 1879, which is, again, a uh, personal experience. It sh- shows his wife, Edith, his daughter, Gladys, as models, and presumably his leaving them um, from the title The Father's Leave-Taking. This is a a simple composition of a mother and child, a Madonna and child kind of theme, and the sculpturesque figures, the classical columns, and the distant gaze of the woman give it all a kind of monumental, almost surreal, haunting quality. Technically, it's an improvement on his earlier work with less fussy detail and strong contour lines and convincing tonal passages. And again, he was not satisfied until he'd gone through several reworkings of the image and added a lot of cross-hatching. So, despite his struggles with the technical aspects of the medium, um, his involvement with etching and the etching club had kept him in touch with a supportive group of fellow artists. It had also provided him with a modest financial return, and it provided him with the prospect of uh, a means to disseminate his image to a wider audience. His ongoing desire to disseminate his images to... um, Uh, wider audience led to his involvement in another important printmaking venture. So again back in the Holy Land in 1855 while in Jerusalem looking for subjects to paint and etch he received a letter from Millet. Millet said would you like to join me in designing illustrations for a special publication of Alfred Lord Tennyson's poetry. There was Definitely an audience for books like this kind of book of poetry among an increasingly literate and leisured middle class. And several factors had converged by mid-century to create a flourishing book illustration trade. These included things like improved technology and changes in tax laws, such as the repeal of the stamp duty on newspapers in 1855 and the repeal of duty on paper in 1861. And like metal type, wood engraved lines stood in relief on the block, which enabled text and image to be cheaply and efficiently printed together. Artists drew either directly on the wood blocks, or they provided drawings that were adhered to the blocks, and then they ended up being destroyed in the cutting process. And the blocks were cut by skilled but anonymous craftsmen. So this edition of Tennyson's poetry would end up having 54 wood engravings, Um, And it was published by Edward Moxon in 1857 and became, Moxon's Tennyson became a very famous publication and a pivotal moment in the art of book illustration in the 1860s. And it's forever linked to the Pre-Raphaelites and um, to Holman Hunt, to Millet and Rossetti because they all made drawings for the publication. Hunt designed seven illustrations and some of them were were inspired by his experience in the Middle East, such as the ones made for Uh, this image that I'm showing you, the Recollections of the Arabian Nights. And these have overt oriental sources, which show turbaned men in exotic dress in sort of foreign settings, as we see here. Other images in the and Tennyson show his interest in things medieval, and this is a famous illustration of the Lady of Shalat, which illustrate the lines from Tennyson The curse has come upon me, cried the Lady of Shalott. And Hunt has captured this moment of catastrophe when the Lady of Shalott yields to temptation, abandons her work, and is doomed, and Hunt shows her caught in a web of swirling threads. He was sufficiently enamored with the subject of this poem that he returned to the theme in 1886, and he used the same composition in two versions uh, of the painting, and I'm showing you here the Lady of Shalott from the Manchester Art Gallery, which is in our exhibition. So designing wood engravings was a potentially lucrative enterprise, and Hunt turned to, a, to this activity when he needed funds to fin- finance major painting projects. He produced around 25 drawings that appeared as wood engravings in Victorian books of poetry and in popular literary magazines. But his output was still modest compared to that of his friend Millet who made over 270 designs for wood engravings. Here's another example of Hunt's work. This is called The Light of Truth from the Parables from Nature. Um, It shows how Hunt's designs were typically characterized by bold formats and they often focused on one or two figures. And they contrasted again with the romantic scenes and the delicately, delicately rendered vignette style that was typical of conventional 19th century book illustration. This is a dark, densely worked image that shows a young woman twisting and floating in a trance-like state as she struggles to turn away from the mysterious will of the wisp, which entices her in the back further and further into the murky swamp. It's a deceptively simple black and white design but he creates complex meanings through the expressive pose of the figure and the suggestion of several different light sources. So Hunt, before he would commit to designing or illustrating a text like this, he would read the story carefully and contemplate the author's message. He'd determine if it was akin to his own artistic vision and whether he uh, felt strongly about the message. And given his, these high standards, he also chose his projects very carefully, He worked very slowly, and his approach resulted in a limited number of commissions for wood engravings and in low financial returns. So um, as a way to make money, it was not a particularly lucrative um, enterprise for Hunt. Hunt's most lucrative involvement with the print trade came through reproductive engravings which most effectively carried his vision to the outside world. And I'm showing you the Light of the World painting, uh, the one that's in the exhibition, and um, an engraving after it. Just make a few comments about the enormous demand for engraved translations of paintings in Victorian England. The world was, was rapidly changing. There was a technical revolution that changed the face of British printmaking and print publishing. Uh, for example, durable steel plates were introduced in 1822, and there is something called electrotyping that was introduced, which made the plates incredibly hard, and they wouldn't wear out for large print runs. By the 1860s, there were all kinds of sophisticated mixed-method engraving techniques using combinations of etching, mezzotin, aquitin, and so on, and they also used machines, ruling machines, that allowed large areas of the plate to be engraved quickly. This was to make ever more um, exact, detailed reproductions of the popular paintings. There were new rail and shipping lines and better roads, which uh, resulted in better distribution, and improved distribution and uh, trade expansion. And hand-in-hand with all these technical innovations came the rise of British nationalism and the call to promote homegrown art, as well as the growth of an art-interested public who were um, desiring frameworks of art for their walls. Reproductive prints were considered to be luxury items. They were accepted as substitutes for the original painting, and the importance of such reproductions in reflecting Victorian morals and values and in expanding knowledge about art should not be overestimated. underestimated. sorry. Um, other things like the retraction of import duties on glass in 1845 made it possible to uh, glaze large prints in heavy gilded frames, which again sometimes rivaled contemporary paintings in size and overall appeal. And these prints were produced in a bewildering array of proof states, lending an aura of prestige and the illusion of rarity. So to combat this corruption in 1847, there was a, a group called the Print Sellers Association that was formed which was an organization of print publishers and dealers to regulate print production and all proofs. They had to be uh, they were required to be declared and stamped by the PSA But Hunt was very familiar with the potential of the print market, of this print market, and he was prepared to do all he could to use it to spread his images abroad. So again, if we go back to Hunt in the Holy Land in 1854 to 56, he was still having difficulty finding models for his paintings, and he was actively exploring, as we've already learned, his etching and wood engraving, He was also seeking opportunities to reproduce his oil paintings, and he was deep in negotiations by letter with the London art dealer, Ernest Gambart, for the rights to make an engraving for his painting, The Light of the World. The painting had been shown at the Royal Academy in 1854, and it had received little attention until John Ruskin, the critic, wrote a long letter to the Times and described the symbolism um, and described the subject of this Christ knocking on the door, holding a lantern, standing in the darkness in a garden overgrown with weeds, and he called it one of the very noblest works of sacred art ever produced in this or any other age. So this was again the kind of endorsement that would improve, that would prove very important to Hunt, a favorable review that would could make or break a career, and uh, from a well-respected critic like Ruskin. Ruskin realized that this was a unique kind of image, a devotional image, not a record of a specific narrative or an event in the Bible, and unlike any other religious uh, painting up to that time. One that demands, with all the symbolism, a personal response from the viewer, inviting the uh, viewer to welcome Christ and open the door. And this struck a chord with Victorian audiences. Um, Hunt, when he was working on this painting, recorded later that or recounted later, that he had experienced a religious conversion while he was painting the light of the world, and that he was reading the Bible at the time he was painting it. I'm wondering if it was his pictorial Bible, which belonged to his father. There's connection that has been made between this image of the high priest in the Bible, who has a breastplate with precious stones that are very like the jewels on Christ's cloak in the light of the world. Other sources, other printed sources for his images may have been some of the black and white prints that were in circulation at the time, although he certainly denied this when he was accused that he may have been looking at some of these. And I'm showing you um, an engraving after Philip Veit of 1824 on the left, which shows Christ knocking at the door of the soul. And a sort of version of it uh, by Isaac Williams in um, an illustration in his book of Sacred Verses of 1843, which is another book that Hunt may very well have been familiar with. So in the case of the light of the world, Hunt was determined to find engravers that would do full justice to his picture. He refused an offer of 300 pounds for the copyright from two engravers because he was not convinced that they would do an adequate job. And this shows how um, much energy he showed in quality control in the production of his reproductive prints. He was willing to wait patiently for the right engraver. He was willing to sacrifice some of his profit in order that the engraving, as he said, would be extremely good, for a good engraving might get abroad to France and Germany, where they are very impudent about British art. So finally, the copyright was sold to the dealer, Ernest Gambart, for 200 pounds, and the dealer found William Henry Simmons, a master of stipple engraving, who who met Hunt's approval. He was a fairly highly regarded engraver and Hunt's patron Thomas Coombe, who had purchased the painting for four hundred pounds, was persuaded to give it up for two years that's how long it took for the engraver to uh, to make the engraving and he got a payment in exchange for giving it up for two years of one hundred and eighty pounds, and also six Proofs Before Letters, and one of those is in the exhibition, one of the proofs that belonged to Thomas Coombe. In 1858, Gambart finally published the engraving in a series of lettered and unlettered proofs and plain prints. And a review in the Illustrated London News said that, having seen a proof of it, we can safely say, considering both as the translation of the picture and simply as a work of the Buren, it is one of the most perfect things modern art has produced, a real triumph it did become a runaway success, leading to many less expensive expensive versions in what would become a steady stream of printed renditions of this image, which is probably the most reproduced Protestant image of all time. This shows also how Ernest Gambart could take big risks as a dealer in the 19th century, but he could also amass a large fortune. And he became, um, as he was called, sort of unacknowledged legislature of the art world. As the light of the world traveled and was exhibited in major centers across England, subscription lists for the impressions of the engraving grew, and sales of the engraving alone would provide Gambart with a substantial annual income of a £1,000, so a £1,000 annually for the rest of his life. When the large version of the painting, which I mentioned before, was presented to St. Paul's Cathedral in 1908, traveled across Canada, Australia, and South Africa from 1905 to 1907, it was already famous through engraved translations that hung in Victorian parlors across the British Empire. And thousands more impressions were sold on the tour. And I'm just showing you um, some images. It's actually in a scrapbook. that is in uh, a library in in London now, but it shows some of the images of some of the places that the the Light of the World painting uh, was shown. In the top uh, left corner, we have it arriving in Halifax, or uh, sorry, coming through the snow in Halifax, I think it is. It's very hard to see. Um, And then it's being shown in the Masonic Hall in Halifax. Um, It's was shown at the Ontario Society of Art in Toronto on King Street, in your left hand lower corner. And it shows it arriving at an art gallery in Montreal in the lower right. So that shows you the trip of the Light of the World across the British Empire. Now as with the Light of the World, the symbolism, the realism and the symbolism was very important in this painting called The Finding of the Savior in the Temple. This uh, is is an image that depicts a pivotal moment in the early beginning of Christ's ministry when his parents find him meeting with teachers in the temple. And it was Hunt's most ambitious painting to date. It was begun while he was in Jerusalem in 1854 and completed in 1860. There were many delays while he was forced to work on other paintings and other projects, sorry, first forced to work on other projects in order to finance the painting. So he was determined to get the best possible price for the sale of both the painting and the copyright. And according to his autobiography, it was a fortuitous meeting with the author Charles Dickens that gave him the confidence he needed to pursue a hard bargain with his dealer. Because Hunt told Dickens that he intended to charge Gambart Gambart the then unheard of sum of 5,500 pounds. This is for the copyright and the painting. That would be over a million dollars today. What well, Dickens sat down and talked to Hunt and supported this amount. He suggested that Hunt allow the dealer to pay it in installments over two to three years. He also provided Hunt with a catalog of lists of the costs on one side and the revenues on the other to the dealer. And miraculously, Gambart agreed to the proposal. And between May and October of 1860, he had already cleared more than the princely purchase money paid to Mr. Hunt on the gate receipts to the exhibition of the painting in his gallery on Bond Street. Dickens told Hunt, wrote to Hunt and said, You have caused my hatter to be madder than ever. He declares that you have choked up Bond Street with the carriages for your exhibition so that none of his established customers can get to his shop. So it was a very popular painting. And in June 1863, the engraving was registered with the Print Sellers Association, although it would take four more years before it, was actually, uh, before it appeared and was published. The engraving, which I'm showing you on the, the right-hand side, garnered 10,000 pounds in 1867, the first year of its publication. And it was um, produced in line engraving by a very eminent uh, printmaker called Auguste Blanchard. And this was praised very highly in the Art Journal too, saying the print will be universally accepted as an acquisition of rare value, destined to occupy the place of honor in tens of thousands of homes where art is loved and the Christian faith is venerated. I'd like to just take a minute to, show, to look at the, the finding in, of the Savior in the temple as a kind of case study that shows Hunt's working method. Because um, I came to the conclusion that the finished painting was not the end product or the only product um, that, that Hunt was interested in when he was working on a project. Oh, again, I'm, I'm going back to the pictorial Bible here. I found this little image of um, some um, Jews teaching a boy in the temple, and it seems to it may have been an inspiration for Hunt for this painting here you go. It's part of a larger scheme, I think, for Hunt when he started with um, an idea, perhaps from the Bible, and progressed through um, all sorts of different stages. This is what I call the preparation stage because he went to the Middle East to um, do archaeological research and to make sure that his his images were as authentic as possible uh, to the time. And so he Sought out authentic settings and he made drawings from life and he made watercolors of the settings and the landscape to capture, in order to capture the light. And he collected objects and textiles while he was there. And many of, um, or some of his textiles that he collected are in the Royal Ontario Museum now and are in our exhibition. So you can see them on display. I'm showing you a few examples here of the kinds of things he collected. He put all this together and determined how to convey the spiritual message that he wanted to convey. Um, It was very important to him, it was vital to him that he convey his symbolic content through this kind of realistic detail. And then we see, this is a a painting that's in the exhibition. It's a painting showing by another artist, John Valentine, showing Hunt working on his canvas. This is actually him working on the replica of the finding of the Savior of the temple. You can see in the background The painting that you see behind the screen is actually the one that's in the exhibition, the larger version. But he would work on these canvases over several years, painstakingly. It took him years to to finish this painting. And then he was also very concerned about the presentation, about designing um, the frame of the painting, for example. And I'm just showing you a black and white um, image of the painting. Um, sorry, it's not in color on the left, but this is the actual painting that's in the exhibition. It shows it in its original frame. Millet would praise the, um, the frame and the painting. He said that it was the painting was like a jewel in a gorgeous setting. And someone talked about the symbolism um, in the painting overflowing onto the frame. And Hunt designed these frames himself. Many of the works in the exhibition in frames that Hunt himself design. And they have all kinds of symbolism that relate to the story that you see in the painting and that add and give you another way of, of, of entering into the story or into the meaning of the painting. And then there uh, was the frame that was made for the engraving. This is very rare. We have this in the exhibition. It's actually from the AGO collection. The engraving... Um, in a very rare proof impression was in a frame. It was very similar to the frame on the original painting. And then also, he was very concerned with the promotion of the work. In addition to the the presentation of the work in the frame, he also included, when you went to see the painting, you could pick up a pamphlet that explained the symbolism. And he also had additional, sometimes additional guides, key plates, like you see here. You can, I don't know if you can really see this very well, but this is uh, sort of outlines of the figures and the objects in the painting that explain in a, in a list, in a guide below, what each item um, actually represents. And then he oversaw the, uh, the preparation of the engraved plates. And he sometimes made a copy or a replica of the painting. This so this is all part of his focused determination to provide audience with, audiences with a multiplicity of entry points into experiencing the story at different levels uh, and to appreciate the meaning of the, st- of the story. Another new marketing strategy too that was introduced in the 19th century, we've kind of alluded to this, was the way that you could access a new urban audience through a traveling exhibition. People would pay admission and the gate receipts could generate a substantial income. And we know that here at the gallery because uh, we rely on the gate receipts here. But the finding of the saviour in the temple actually traveled across England and Ireland for five and a half years in 1863. And this was the peak, really, of Hunt's celebrity in the 1860s. He, his celebrity reached a peak um, with, this, with this particular enterprise and this painting. So I'm just going to conclude with one other example that um, shows you uh, a major work and how Hunt um, was able to maintain this celebrity status and uh, into the next decade in a work that garnered him the most financial gain of any any other work that he produced. And this is from the uh, second trip to Jerusalem. He went the second time in 1869 to 1872. I can't resist showing you um, an engraving from the Bible uh, by After Overbeck, uh, the Transfiguration, which again might have provided a source for Hunt. A painting with the engraving here. This represents his sustained commitment to the early ideals of his pre Raphaelite vision, with his attention to authentic detail and the obvious moral message and spiritual content. Here we see Christ in the carpenter's shop stretching at the end of a long day and casting a shadow that foreshadows his death on the cross. And we know that Hunt was very concerned to um, obtain the most realistic detail that he possibly could and visited a lot of carpenter shops um, in Jerusalem in order, to, um, in, in order to find the most authentic detail he could. But in 1873, he sold this painting along with an oil sketch of it and the copyright for the engraving to a dealer called Thomas Agnew & Sons for the astronomical sum of £10,500. And in this contract, he agreed to make a quarter size replica of the painting for the engraver, Frederick Stackpole. And in addition to doing this, he, provided, he, just, he agreed to provide the engraver with all necessary instructions to touch up and correct all the artist's proofs and to sign all the artist proofs. And his popularity would reach an all time high with the publication of this in 1878. There were apparently a staggering 1,485 artist proofs and 600 signed and unsigned before letters proofs, all of which, well, not all of which, but um, most of which Hunt would have to have signed. So that kept him very busy for a long time. There were also 2,000 lettered proofs and an undetermined number, in fact, probably countless plain impressions. Egg News, the dealer, made over 20,000 pounds from the sales of the proofs alone. And when the painting was sent for exhibition to the north of England, this subject of Christ in his carpenter's shop was hailed by the working men and the artisans there. They saw this Christ as a real um, working man. Um, The irony here was that the price of the reproductive engravings, which were really, as we said before, luxury items, prevented them from becoming truly accessible and affordable to all classes of society. However, in this case, their special dispensation, the working-class men were able to purchase impressions of the print on an installment plan. And they loved this idea. They loved the idea that this might always be before them in their homes this vision of Christ as a, as a real man. And this pleased Hunt, too, because, um, as always, he wanted his message to be available to as wide an audience as possible. So by the end of the century, and I'm showing you here uh, a photograph of Hunt's ashes lying in state in September of 1910 from a photo that um, surfaced in the Royal Ontario Museum that wasn't known before. Hunt had become alienated by this point from the most avant-garde artistic trends, but as we noted at the beginning, he was still adored by the public, who owned engravings after his pictures and who flocked in the thousands to see his cremated remains transported from Kensington to St. Paul's Cathedral for his interment on the 12th of September, 1910. And fittingly, presiding over his casket was a version of the light of the world, as you can see in the background there, but it wasn't one of the three versions of the painting. Rather, it was a framed black and white engraving of his famous Christ at the Door knocking, which provides a tangible reminder right to the end that Hunt had held fast to his pre-Raphaelite vision, and that one of the ways he'd done this was by understanding, embracing, reinventing, and exploiting the world of prints. And that's the end. (laughs)
0: I just want to thank you very, very much for a wonderful talk and what a fascinating man, what fascinating art, and I'm, I'm just intrigued with the phenomenon of, of the light of the world and how much it's sold. Thank you very much, Brenda.